Well, the question was once posed to a panel of ethicists. If you were able to go back in time and take the life of an adolescent Adolf Hitler, would you do it? Would the ends of, of saving countless lives justify the means of taking one life? It's a popular question, perhaps you've heard it, and we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one in some ways if, we're, if we admit it, but it's been one that has been thought not only in years past, but even in, in recent years. In my own hometown, if you Google Pensacola, Florida, one of the things that you'll find is uh, there, there's a lot of instances of violence against abortion doctors. Uh, one of the first major killings of an abortion doctor was in, in Pensacola. And, and one notable headline is when a former Presbyterian minister gunned down an abortion doctor in 1994 along with his bodyguard right outside of his clinic. And this man, until his execution, continued to say that his actions were justified because his one sin did not compare to the many grievous sins that were happening and that would take place at the hand of this doctor. Do the ends justify the means? These questions might seem fairly cut and dry, but the reality is, is we come to this question all the time, don't we? God gives us many laws, and quite frankly, they don't always seem expedient to arriving at the most beneficial ends. So do those ends, even if beneficial for many people, justify disobeying God's command? Is Robin Hood justified in stealing from the rich? Is it okay to lie in your taxes if you give the proceeds to the gospel ministry? Do the ends justify the means? Well, in our text this morning, as we continue in 1 Samuel, we come to a bit of an ethical conundrum for our young king. He's got a a problem, a situation. It really has to decide if, if the lives that he could save, the ends of saving Israel, at least how he saw it, justified the means of disobedience. And, and it is this conundrum that I want to consider this morning, but before we get there, I, I want to do, take a look at this text under three headings, the first of which is a royal stench. Well, if you'll take a look at 1 Samuel 13, if you recall from how we ended our text last week in chapter 12, we found that there was this bit of an ominous declaration from Samuel, God's prophet. In the midst of a word of condemnation against the people of Israel for rebelling and asking for a king, he tells them that they have acted wrongly and that they must confess, they must repent, they must turn. And he says, if you will be obedient, God will save the nation. But if you're not, 
both you and your king will be swept away. And that's how our text ends last week. So the careful reader goes into chapter 13 with a bit of a question. Okay, what's going to happen with the nation? What's going to happen with their king? And, and, and in the book, we see here that further and further, the identity of the king and the identity of the nation are being further, further intermingled. That as the king goes, so the people go. We'll see this repeated time and time again. And so we're really wondering, as we open chapter 13, what will Saul do? What will the people do? Will they be obedient to God's word? And that is what we find as we open these first verses. Well, immediately it looks to like things are going uh, uh, pretty well. Saul has recruited an army of 3,000. He takes 2,000 himself, he heads towards Michmash, and then this other character arrives on the scene who, who we haven't heard about before, Jonathan, uh, who, who takes 1,000 soldiers with him. We'll, we'll later find out that Jonathan is, is Saul's son. But Jonathan goes with his 1,000, and it says that he will strike down uh, the garrison of the Philistines. Now, most likely what this word is, is this, is this is some sort of ruler or prince or commander of the Philistine army. This is, a, this is an assassination attempt that he is going for. And, and as we see in the text, he's successful in it. This unknown character, Jonathan, who we later find out is Saul's own son, is successful in taking out this garrison or taking out this leader of the Philistines. And this would be a great military conquest. So, so far, so good in our story, right? We find that Saul will go and announce with a trumpet blast this great victory to let everyone know what has happened, that another great battle has been won. And we hear from our text that in this announcement that the Israelites receive two details. First, that this garrison or governor of the Philistines has been struck down. And the second is that Israel has become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. This might seem a bit of a strange idiom, and yet it's one that we use frequently. I might tell Kevin that the Dodgers stink. Um, and, and that could be because they're actually horrible at baseball, but what's actually the case is they keep beating the Padres. Um, so we, we use phrases like that. That's what's going on. They're, they're angry about what has happened and, and that this, this nation has become a, a stench to them. And they desire revenge. And they, they desire it big time. If you look at the text and see what the response of the Philistines is, it says that they muster together 30,000 chariots. Some of your translations might say 3,000 because the number is so huge, it doesn't seem likely. Whatever the case, even if 3,000, the largest gathering of chariots we find elsewhere from enemies of God is 600 when Pharaoh is chasing Israel out of Egypt. So this is a massive, massive recruiting effort. Along with these chariots, we find 6,000 horsemen, foot soldiers that the text tells us were like the sand of the seashore, a phrase that might sound familiar. Uh, the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be 
uh, uncountable, like the stars in the sky, like the dust on the earth, or like the sand on the seashore. What we find rising here is an anti-Israel that is rising up against God's people. And they have made camp at Michmash. For those of you interested in the geography, this is about seven miles north of Jerusalem, and they're, they're waiting. They're waiting to attack. Now keep in mind here that Israel's army is 3,000. Not nearly as many folks, as, 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 as much power as the 30,000 chariots or what have you that is massing against them. But not only, are, it, it begins as 3,000, but it would seem like they're dropping like flies. I mean, the text tells us that the armies find out about the Philistine anger and start hiding in caves and rocks and tombs, literally creating a graveyard of themselves before the battle had even begun. Now, if you recall, it wasn't long ago where we were reading together and and remembering how God had brought this amazing victory for God's people at the hand of Saul, this this miraculous victory. And yet, just a chapter later, we find Israel hiding in tombs and cisterns, any rock that they can crawl under just to keep themselves safe from this enemy that God has already promised they will have victory over. We already know that God has promised that Saul would save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God has has declared that to him. And in the verses preceding this, the people are reminded that it is the Lord that they are to fear. And yet now, here they are, scared of everything, and forgetting God's promises. The people are trembling in caves at the sight of their enemies. Well, as we move through the passage, we can get a better idea of why this might be. Why are they so scared? Certainly, they're outnumbered, but we also find that they're outgunned. The the Philistines at this point in history have a a corner on the metal market. Their their technology has, has far advanced the neighboring nations. And particularly as it comes to metal weaponry. Uh, and, and they've created somewhat of a monopoly, the text tells us. Israel is very much in the Bronze Age at this point. But the Philistines have learned some new technology. And they were willing to, to sharpen some things and make weapons, but it would come at an astronomical cost to any of the surrounding nations. They, they, they weren't interested in trading their weaponry. And so we find out that of whatever soldiers are left in Israel, they have gardening tools, with the exception of Saul and Jonathan. They, they have sword and spear, but everyone else is without weapon. We all know that you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, Israel knew that you don't bring a gardening rake to a sword fight. So they're outnumbered. They're outgunned. This situation really is dire for the nation. You can understand the fear that they're experiencing. But again, we have to remember that we know that there's, there's, a, there's a test going on here. The text has set it up like that for us. Will Israel fear the nations 
Or will Israel fear the Lord? Will they trust in God even when everything around them seems like it is crumbling? Will they believe that God, despite what they see on the surface, will actually be faithful? I mean, certainly there's analogy to our own experience here, is there not? That when things are at their worst, do we trust in what God says will be the outcome? God has made promises. We know they are true, and yet day to day in this world as we battle our own flesh, sin, and the devil, it so much, so often seems we are outgunned. There's much to be stressed about. Do we jump to doing or do we follow God's commands to be anxious for nothing and just pray? <laughs> Is that our reaction to trust God and trust that the battle is the Lord's. Well, we are beginning to see how the people will respond in Israel. Well, what about the king? Well, first we have this, this royal stench. Next, we have a kingly conundrum. If you look at verse 8, we once again find that with Saul, things are, are starting off pretty well. Despite the urgency of the situation around him, he's, he's waiting according to the directive of Samuel, the prophet of God. And he's, he's waited a full seven days, the text says. Now, it's a bit unclear as to whether this command to wait so that the prophet might come and give sacrifices pertains to this particular situation, if this is just a norm for battling in Israel. But what is unclear to us Saul definitely seems to understand what he's supposed to do. And we can tell by how he reacts. He knows he is to wait seven days in order that this prophet Samuel might come and offer sacrifices to God before this great battle. That the name of the Lord should be called upon before the nation goes into battle. But it would seem that at some point on day seven when the prophet had not showed up, that Saul assesses the situation and decides that it's time to move forward. Uh, it's, it's time to, to get things going. And he has a, some pretty good reasons for doing so, but, but he calls for the sacrifice. The text tells us that he's continuing to lose soldiers. Old Sam is running late. There's this opposing army that could strike at any time. And they're as large, and their, their, their number is as the sand of the seashore. And you can understand why Samuel, or why Saul rather, would be thinking, what would be expedient in this moment? We need to save the nation. Saul's decision to go ahead and move forward not only seems reasonable, quite frankly, it seems wise in a lot of ways. In fact, it seems so wise that if you read a lot of commentaries on this passage, they'll say that Saul moving forward with the sacrifice wasn't his sin. Uh, Saul um, uh, deciding to get things going wasn't the problem. The, the problem with Saul is that he waited to begin with. Like He should have been acting like a king. He should have set things in motion from day one. He's, he's standing around for seven days waiting for someone else to be king for him. 
And so commentators are reading this like, of course this is what makes sense, but, but is that what the text tells us? I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I mean, certainly Saul's decision seems pragmatic, but it, it would seem that he and certainly Samuel know that it was the wrong call. Let's look together, verse 9. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. It's almost like he was hiding, <laughs> waiting. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. The, the text literally, he went out to bless him. But Samuel didn't have time for niceties, did he? He says, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and, and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, so I forced myself, I compelled myself, I, I did it against my will, and I offered the burnt offering. I mean, it, it seems from Saul's response that he understands he did something wrong, that, that waiting wasn't the problem, that impatience was the problem, that offering a sacrifice before the prophet priest had arrived was a problem. And we know this by his litany of excuses. It's the people. You weren't here, Samuel. The, 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 the enemy. He ends up saying, I forced myself. Which is an interesting way, but it's a very accurate rendering of the text. I, I did this against my will. You, you made me do it, almost to say. It's very interesting. Samuel seems to be waiting around the corner for the seventh day. P perhaps uh, a lot of commentators have suggested that uh, according to the morning and evening sacrifice, uh, Saul had waited till after the time of the morning sacrifice, but had not gotten all the way through the seventh day. And that's, that's probably what's going on here. But either way, we see that the prophet comes in judgment. I think what's so interesting about this passage is the parallels to the Garden of Eden when you think about what's going on. Many have noted that the whole seven-day motif is meant to get us thinking about creation. But it goes on from there. We, we know from Psalm 8 that Adam is considered a king in the garden, that, that, that God has given him rule over this garden creation, and he's to rule according to obedience. He is to be obedient to God's word and that this kingdom will expand as he is obedient. And the scriptures also imply that there is some sort of test on Adam. That, that this kingdom is, is, is held out according or waiting for his obedience. Will Adam be obedient? But Adam chooses, like Saul, what is expedient. And when he does, God shows up and says, what? What have you done? The same way Samuel approaches Saul. Even the excuses are strikingly similar. Adam will first blame the woman. He'll then blame God. And then Adam and Eve together will blame the enemy. That's what we see here from Saul. He first blames the people. He blamed, uh, blames the prophet of God for not showing up. And then he blames the enemy. When given the option, both Adam and Saul choose expediency over God's word. 
in a lot of ways you can see why. And the serpent's words made a lot of sense to Adam and Eve. Seemed good. <laughs> to be like God, that, that sounds like a good thing. For Saul to get this battle going before the last of his troops end up skipping town seems like a much wiser approach than continuing to wait for some old man to show up and offer a sacrifice. And we can see the expediency here. We can see why he would take this route. What is wise according to worldly standards really does present attractive incentives. In Saul's case, the ends really do seem to justify the means. Saul does not want Israel to perish. He knows God does not want Israel to perish. But the fact of the matter is that when we're speaking about the ends that God himself has promised, we must trust that the means that he has provided will be good and right even when they seem utterly foolish by worldly account. Even when they seem to defy expediency in every way, we're called to trust that God's way is the best way, not only the ends, but the means themselves. I don't believe you should cheat on your taxes and give the proceeds to the church. Because God does not need those kind of proceeds. His arm is not too short to provide for his people. And his arm in 1 Samuel 13 is not too short to save his people. Even in the most dire of circumstances. I mean, it would seem throughout the Bible that God wins victories against all odds. As Luther has said, God often works in the opposites. It's kind of his thing. Will we trust? Well, at first we see this royal stench at Israel has become this difficult situation, and we see this royal conundrum. Finally, we see an imperial demise. Let's consider Saul's response to Samuel, which I would say also reminds us of the Garden of Eden with this condemnation and curse. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he had commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Just as Adam was promised an everlasting kingship in exchange for obedience to God's command, that's taken away from him. And we see that it takes some time to, to carry out. Adam doesn't physically die right away. Saul will continue to reign in some sense for some time and will continue to see this confirmed in the next few weeks and the next few chapters. But what we do know is our question is answered. Will Saul be the guy? And that's fairly clear here. He won't. And it's because he's not obedient. 
But I think what's perhaps even more difficult is like Adam, Saul does not act for himself. The Apostle Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians makes it very clear to us that in regards to Adam, he acts as our federal head. That is, as Adam sins, we all sin in him. This this, uh, doctrine of original sin that we understand, that the sin of Adam is passed on to the progeny, those who come after him, that as Adam goes, so his people go. Well, Israel's story in so many ways is a microcosm of that reality. The story of Israel is often shown that as the king goes, so the people will go. People rise and fall with their kings. We see it throughout First and Second Kings. We see it throughout First and Second Chronicles. We'll see it throughout this book of First Samuel. Whether the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, if there is a good and righteous king, the people follow and prosper, as rare as that was. And when there is evil kings, the people follow in idolatry. When the high places of idolatry are torn down, the people follow the king in right worship. And when idols are built by kings, the people will follow. And this will end ultimately in exile, both for the north and the south, where all of God's people are are sent into exile. But it's interesting in both cases that that announcement of exile first comes upon a king. And then the people follow. This really is why there's so much, one of the main reasons why there's so much ink dedicated to the history of the kings. Will this be the one that's righteous so that the people might follow in that righteousness? Will this be the one who establishes this eternal kingdom through obedience? Will this be the one who is righteous and just who is after God's own heart. Well, we get the answer regarding Saul, don't we? He's not the one. But in the midst of judgment, both in the garden and in our text this morning, we have a promise. For Adam and Eve, the promise is that God is bringing forth a seed that will finally crush the enemy's head. For Israel... Samuel says this, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And we will in the coming weeks be introduced to David, this king after God's own heart. But even then we find that David points to an ultimate king. As obedient as David was, he wasn't obedient enough (laughs) to be that eternal king. And yet we find one of his own namesake, one who comes in David's line, a royal son of David who will be obedient. And not not just mostly obedient, but who is completely faithful and true, who rules God's people with righteousness, a king who is willing to win battles in ways that God desires to bring about victory even when the means seem completely foolish. A king that knows that the only true folly is to be disobedient to God's command. And we'll find this 
and David's royal son, King Jesus. He battles the enemy with nothing that looks like worldly power. Instead, wins by dying. But in that death that seems like utter foolishness, but is in complete obedience to his father, as Philippians tells us, this king defeats our true enemies, ourselves, our sinful nature. Sin is defeated. The earthly rulers and authorities have been disarmed, Colossians tells us. They have been put to open shame. And in this king's resurrection, death itself is defeated. And that is why we can trust. Even when things seem at their worst, the the absolute worst that can happen is you die. I mean that. That's the worst. But even that's not so bad. In fact, it ends up being a good thing. That's, That's good as well. The reality is, is the battle of this life will kill us. But that's not the end for someone who raises the dead. We can trust, even in the most difficult situations, because our Savior has risen from the dead. And as the King goes, so the people go. And in Christ's victory over the forces of sin, death, and the devil, he secures victory, and he grants the spoils of that victory to all who have faith in him, all who have responded in faith and repentance. And all who die in him live. Even death has no sting. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. And as our King Jesus goes, so we will go. Amen? Let's pray together.